You're listening to The Trainumentary. On this episode, we visit with musician and Coltrane band member, Steve Kuhn. The first time I heard John was um, in the Miles recordings. The earliest ones that he did was Miles. It was something that was very uh, compelling about what he did. Uh, it was very raw in a way and primitive, you might say, but yet there was a lot of sophistication and you can see the potential was, was an enormous. I mean, he, he didn't really sound like anybody to me and I'd been listening to music long before I heard him. It really caught my attention and then through the time he was with Miles and that quintet, which I think arguably for me, the best small group that ever played the music uh, with uh, Philly Joe and Paul and uh, Red Garland and Miles, that quintet was extraordinary and still to this day I listen to it and it's, it's still resonates very very strongly with me and then just hearing john evolve and his his sound became fuller in a way uh the intonation problems cleared up and he uh just uh, continued to grow and grow and grow and uh and along with that came the original compositions of his and what he was trying to do harmonically and then what he tried to undo harmonically and just play without very much harmony at all or and subsequently with no no real harmonic bass uh, just the free so-called quote-unquote free uh, playing but for me the beginning when i heard him and through the time he was with miles and then the early 60s resonates the deepest musically for me that when the so-called freer playing it didn't get to me the way the earlier stuff did i remember bill evans telling me that when he worked with miles and john was in that in that quintet that he thought that people were talking about his playing a lot of notes but the fact was that bill said to me that he thought that john had more technique on that instrument than he'd ever heard anybody any saxophonist before or since and probably right but yet at the same time he was able to channel that eventually he was able to play ballads extraordinarily well and with many fewer notes than than he would more up-tempo things and it never bothered me that he uh, had these displays of technique because uh, it was not done for the sake of technique he was really searching and looking and finding his way through and he had to do that and it was a lot of musicians just have a lot of facility and they show it off all the time and uh, to me that's it's, it's not about the music it's about it's they're just showing off really and, and the, the content of the music is uh, sacrificed to a certain extent because ultimately in my in my view the uh, the music that you should play should be an emotional connection with with an audience. It's not about how fast you play or how how much harmonic sophistication you have or all all those tools. You assimilate that and then you really start to play yourself. And it should be the heart connection rather than anything else, as far as I'm concerned. And John had that. And despite the fact that he played a zillion notes at times, uh, it never it never affected me that way that he was doing it for the sake of showing off. He he never did that. And then getting to play with him and knowing him. I mean, he was such a humble man that, you know, it just, it was really, it was right from his tissue. It, it was no, there was no, nothing put on. It was, uh, it was just all genuine and, and, you know, he was completely, completely dedicated to the music and just looking, searching constantly uh, for some other, other things. So considering the short time that he was on this planet, uh, what he did, absolutely unbelievable. I often think if he did not pass when he did and he was still with us today in a sense, I wonder, well, maybe he just did all he could do and then it was his time. 
and he left. Uh, he may may have reinvented the world again between '67 and now. Who knows? Uh, but what he did in the short time he was here was was absolutely extraordinary, and the influence that he's had then and has had since on all musicians and on uh, music in general as as a uh, artist in the 20th century. I mean, uh, it's uh, he certainly is up there. We're right at the very top. I came to New York. I had uh, graduated uh, from Harvard. And then the summer of 59, I went to uh, the Lenox School of Jazz, Lenox, Massachusetts. I was given a scholarship by Schaefer Beer. There were three weeks of that time. In the fall of 59, I came to New York. This is what I was going to do now. My, I was 21 years old. And uh, one of the people I had met at Lenox was Kenny Dorham, who was on the faculty at the time, a tr wonderful trumpeter and composer. I called everybody I had met up at Lenox uh, on the faculty. I mean, Bill Evans was on the faculty, the Modern Jazz Quartet, Gunther Schuller, George Russell, uh, Ornette Coleman and Don Cherry, uh, Gary McFarlane. We were all students at that, at that time. There was nobody knew about Ornette, John Lewis had brought him from California, and subsequent to that, of course, he went into the five spot, and the rest is history. But, so I, when I got to New York in September of 59, I just called all the people I had met at Lenox and people I had known from my days in Boston prior to that, and uh, Kenny Dorham was looking for a piano player, and uh, so he hired me, and I was three weeks after I got to New York, so I was blessed for that. And then at some point in the, those first few months, I had heard that John had left Miles and was looking to form a quartet. So uh, John being, of course, uh, a, a big hero of mine, I, uh, I got his number and I called him. I, uh, I don't usually do that. I'm basically kind of shy. And, uh, but I said, I'm, I'm going to do this and see what happens. I called him. I said, I know you don't know who I am, but I'm currently working with Kenny Dorham and maybe we could get together sometime and play to, or talk about music. Or I know you're looking to put a band together. So uh, maybe a week or two later, he called me. I was staying at, at this uh, hotel in Midtown, uh, the Bryant Hotel on 54th and Broadway. And uh, he uh, said uh, he'd like to meet with me. Uh, he rented a little studio on 8th Avenue in the 50s, some right by near the hotel. It was a two-by-four room with an upright piano. And the two of us just went in there, and he had his horn, and we played, I guess, stuff from his Giant Steps album, which had just come out fairly recently. We talked, played, in two or three hours maybe, and I went back to the hotel. Nothing was ever said in terms of going beyond that. Or, And then maybe a week or ten days later, the phone rings in the hotel. He said, this is John. Uh, would you, I'd like you to, if you could, come out to my house in Hollis, Queens, where he lived that time with, uh, with his first wife, Naima. 
So I took a subway out there, and essentially we did the same thing. We talked about music and played, and uh, I might have had a little dinner. I don't remember. And then he drove me back to my hotel in, in Manhattan. Again, nothing was said, uh, but it was just nice to have those two two times that I spent some hours with him. And uh, was really captivated by the fact that I had really never met, other than Gunther Schuller, who impressed me with how dedicated and the knowledge that he had, somebody who was really that dedicated to the music. When he wasn't speaking, the horn was in his mouth, and he was just unbelievably involved in his music, and that was what he lived and breathed, obviously. Uh, and he was straight as a pin in those days. He had, uh, everything was, in his, was behind him. He had an addictive personality, obviously. You don't have to be a genius to figure that out, but he, he had this sugar craving, and he used to eat these butter rum lifesavers. But, I mean, he just popped one in after the other, so he, instead of a cologne, all you'd smell was in the butter rums. But that's how I, I, I when every time I smell those things, I, immediately it's just I, I think of him and I can see him. In any case, uh, a week or two later, after that second meeting, the phone rings in the hotel. I'll never forget. He said, this is John. Uh, would $135 a week be okay to start? Now, at that time, I'm working with Kenny Dorham, and the most we ever made, I think, was $100 a week. So in terms of the money, it was, it was like a fortune. And aside from that, I mean, I would have done it anyway for nothing if, if uh, I said, of course, and... So I was ecstatic and uh, over the moon and all the other expressions. And uh, so we started to work at the Jazz Gallery, this club on St. Mark's Place uh, in Manhattan, the Lower East Side. That's the first job he had with the quartet, which was at that time myself. Steve Davis was a bassist and Pete LaRocco was a drummer. And he was hired there for two weeks. And then the two weeks, they extended into four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. I think he probably was there maybe 24 to 26 weeks uh, I just kept extending them because the reaction was so great. I was there six to eight weeks, I don't remember, and then McCoy joined the band. But the, the short time I was with him was just unbelievable experience for me. The electricity and the energy in that room every night in the club, it was like a, a revival meeting or a church. People would literally be getting out of their seats and just going nuts. Uh, he could evoke that kind of emotion with his playing. For me to be in that environment was just really exciting. Uh, we were doing the giant step stuff, and we were also doing some of those things like impressions. Where he, so he was on the fence. He was, he was. There was the dense harmony, and then there was no harmony, or one or two changes to a whole song. He was really didn't quite know where to go. I mean, it was obvious where he was going to go, but at that time he was doing both, both things. So we were playing those two different kinds of repertoire. But it was uh, that. That's basically where he was at at that time. And this was 1960, January, February, March, in in that period of time. I learned a great deal, and uh, it was an experience that I'll never, ever forget. And just being around him and uh, being exposed to that music and to that kind of energy was, uh, was is very rare. And uh, it's something that will stay with me and has stayed with me as long as I live. of the music in his playing he didn't just 
start playing the way he played. He came up through rhythm and blues bands. He had an incredible knowledge of standard songs. And you can hear that in his playing. And then he went on beyond that and then to the so-called avant-garde or, you know, the more extremely modern stuff. But you really hear where all of that stuff came from. And John respected all that. He learned from that and with his incredible talent was able to synthesize and go on and, and project his own voice. It's about the history and the um, the sense of what he does. It's really valid. It evolved the way it should evolve. So he, he studied the past and applied it to whatever he did and then did his own thing and became a, a major influence himself. So I think that's the lesson. Uh, that's why one should listen to as the same with Miles and Charlie Parker and Louis Armstrong. I mean, it's uh, the major, major defining musicians in the history of the music. They all have this same quality that they, they respected the past and learned from it and then added to it. For more information on the program, visit trainumentary.blogspot.com.